Welcome to Wellness Realness with Christina Rice. I'm your host, Christina. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, holistic health coach, Reiki practitioner, and the creator of ChristinaRiceWellness.com, where you can find my blog, recipes, services, programs, and ebooks. In this podcast, I'll be discussing all things related to health and wellness, and I promise to always keep it very real. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and is not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you'd like to submit a question or a topic for me to discuss, submit it on the podcast page at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and join our Facebook group, Wellness Wellness Podcast Tribe. So right now I am recording this intro in Denver, Colorado. I'm here for a quick trip to spend some time in Denver and Boulder, eat all the things, see all the people. It's going to be so fun slash has already been fun, but I'm trying to be a little quiet because I'm in my Airbnb and there are people above me who can probably hear what I'm saying and they're probably asleep. Honestly, this Airbnb listing was very deceptive because they made me believe I was going to have a full kitchen and a whole Airbnb to myself and I don't have a full kitchen. I have a whole lower floor and there's like a mini fridge and a toaster oven and a microwave. I have the whole lower floor to myself, but there are still people above me. So long story short, they can probably hear me talking. Sorry, not sorry. Anywho, I am totally obsessed with Denver. It is such a cute city. So many great places to eat. It's so beautiful and so walkable and just really chill and relaxed and everyone here is really nice. I am loving it. Who knows? Maybe I'll have to do a retreat here someday. That would be amazing. Speaking of retreat, if you have not already gotten your Wellness Realness retreat tickets, you can still get one. All the spots were actually filled yesterday, but then Two people found out they had conflicts, so two spots have opened up. So if you want to grab one of those spots, honestly, I think that was the universe saying that there are two people out there that are listening to this who need to be coming to this retreat. I'm really sad the girls can't make it this time, but they will hopefully be able to make it if I do another retreat in the future. But in the meantime, this is your chance to snag one of those final two spots. The retreat is going to be July 26th through July 28th in San Diego, California. It's going to be the ultimate wellness weekend. We will go hiking. We'll do yoga. We'll do group Reiki. We're getting acupuncture, vitamin shots, nutrient drips, ionic foot baths. We'll have some workshops on nutrition, health, self-love, body image, all the things. A lot of deep conversation. You'll get to connect with other like-minded individuals. And of course, we will be eating the most delicious food. Kelly Scott from Kelly's Clean Kitchen will make us a wonderful home-cooked meal. She's amazing. And we will also be eating food from Parakeet Cafe, Powerhouse Pizza, 
and peace pies. So if you want in, if you want to learn all the details, snag your spot, just go to bit.ly slash wellness realness 2019. Again, that's bit.ly slash wellness realness 2019. And you can find all information right there. I'm telling you, the universe wants someone out there to get those tickets. So if that's you, you'll know it's you. Take the opportunity. If you manifested it, it has come. I am seriously so excited for this year's retreat. Obviously, there will also be amazing goodie bags from some of my favorite companies, one of which is the one and only Ned. You guys know I love Ned Full Spectrum Hemp Oil, and if all goes according to plan for my weekend in Denver, I will be spending some time with the founders. Ned is located in Colorado. This is where their farmer Kurt experiments with different hemp plants and works on dialing in those exact strains for maximum cannabinoid density, terpene content, and overall plant integrity. I love the team at Ned. They are amazing guys. And if you ever call customer service, the founders, Rhett and Adrian, are the ones who are doing all the back-end work because they want to understand everything that goes into building this business before they hire other people to help them out with things like customer service, which is pretty awesome and just goes to show the integrity behind this brand. They do not skimp on quality. Everything is the highest quality. All Ned products are made from organic, whole, natural ingredients. They're all small batch and slow crafted, and they source their products from local farms and communities. I use Ned Full Spectrum Hemp Oil every single day. It's been amazing to help calm me down, reduce my anxiety, can also help with depression. It's also great for inflammation if you have an autoimmune disease. It is also great if you struggle with insomnia. I don't personally, but I know this has been a game changer for so many of my clients. And it's also great for natural pain relief. If you have joint pain, a lot of my clients with autoimmune conditions really love this if they have joint pain. Great for athletes who have inflammation and pain as well. And it's also been really helpful in the treatment of a lot of serious chronic conditions like epilepsy, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. There are so many different CBD brands out there on the market, and sadly, most of them are just not high quality. They are not sourced well. They are cut with inflammatory oils or flavors, and you do not want to be putting that in your body every single day. When you are looking to use something as an anti-inflammatory, you definitely don't want it paired with inflammatory ingredients. That just negates the whole point. A lot of CBD products on the market are often extracted from the stalks and seeds of the hemp plant, which is really the throwaway part of the plant, versus Ned. They only extract from the hemp flowers, also known as the buds. Ned also uses a really gentle and slow ethanol-based extraction method, which is done at room temperature, whereas a lot of other brands will use really high heat or high pressure, which really compromises the profile of the hemp flower and can really compromise the cannabinoid content. CBD isolates are also really common on the market nowadays, and an isolate is a lab-isolated CBD compound that's in that white powdered form, and it's stripped of all of the phytocannabinoids that really help the cannabidiol 
work properly. It's really the group effect of these phytocannabinoids and cannabidiol that work together to provide the true healing powers of hemp. The only ingredients in Ned's full-spectrum hemp oil are the CBD, the cannabidiol, the range of other phytocannabinoids, and non-GMO MCT oil, so they don't need any extra flavors or ingredients. This full-spectrum hemp oil is really just a game-changing product. So many people have told me that CBD doesn't really do anything for them, and then I ask what brand they use, and then I get them to switch over to Ned, and then they tell me, oh my god, this actually works. I have so many friends who use this for anxiety or depression or insomnia and so many clients who also use it for those things as well as the anti-inflammatory factors and balancing out hormones. This is great for hormonal health. It's honestly just the best on the market. And another thing that I love about Ned's products is that they during production, energetically infuse all of the products with binaural beads, positive affirmations, and happy vibes. And that makes actually a huge difference on the efficacy of the products. As an energy healer myself, I know how important that is and how it can really change the whole effect of the product. So I absolutely love that. This is something that I use every day and will never stop using. It's a daily part of my routine. I just put a dropper's worth of the 750 milligram usually under my tongue for about 30 seconds, then I swallow it. I also like to drizzle it a little bit like salad dressing on top of my food, or you can even put it in a nighttime elixir. But I think it tastes amazing. I love it. And I know the care that has gone into creating this product and how hard the guys work to make this as amazing as it can be. And it really performs. So if you are ready to try Ned's Full Spectrum Hemp Oil, you can go to helloned.com and use my discount code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S, for 15% off. Again, that's helloned.com and my discount code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S, will get you 15% off. They have their full spectrum hemp oil. They have the 300 milligram, 750 and 1500, as well as their hemp infused lip balms and their hemp infused body butter, which is absolutely amazing. And I love hearing your testimonials with these products. So keep them coming. Let me know how Ned goes for you and how it has changed your life. Also let the boys know, I know that they really appreciate hearing from their customers, hearing testimonials. That's what what makes it all worth it for them. Speaking of reducing inflammation, today's podcast is all about what has been the most popular anti-inflammatory diet on the scene recently, and that is the ketogenic diet. I know we've talked about the ketogenic diet quite a few times on this show already. I followed a ketogenic diet for about three years, and honestly, I love talking about it. I love the science behind it and geeking out with other people over all things nutrition, and I also love hearing different people's perspectives on keto. So today I'm really happy to be chatting with Christy Storschuk, and she is a science writer. She works with some of the world's leading experts who are researching 
ketogenic diets. She helps to communicate the science behind keto and the different ways it can be used therapeutically for different conditions. She is all about using diet and lifestyle to optimize health and really about using food as medicine. And she's really focusing on how the ketogenic diet helps with different medical conditions versus weight loss, which is really what most people nowadays are excited about keto for is they just want to lose weight, but there's so much more to it than that. And Christy is also super interesting because she likes to experiment on herself and she's tried pretty much every diet under the sun on herself. So she's tried veganism. She did paleo. She's done keto. She's trying out carnivore. So she's dipped her toes in everything and she's really science and research based. So I thought it would be really interesting to hear from her a little bit more about her personal experience as well as having her on to share some of the science behind the ketogenic diet. Christy and I met at Paleo FX this year and she was chatting with me about some of the research that she's been doing and she works with Dom D'Agostino who if you're not familiar with Dom is basically one of the leading researchers on the therapeutic uses of ketogenic diets. He's I mean when I was first learning about keto a few years ago the nutritionist who was talking about it before I mean I'd never heard of it she goes oh yeah I just learned everything from Dom so I immediately went and looked him up and read a bunch of his stuff and he is just a wealth of knowledge and Christy on today's podcast is also just a wealth of knowledge so it's really cool to learn more about what what she's learned from working with Dom and through her own research. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear this one. So talking all about keto, of course, also her personal experiences. And we also discuss, you know, fasting, carnivore diet and lectins and vegetables and bloating and protein intake and all the fun things. We also touch a bit on judgments around what women should should be eating or shouldn't be eating, which is a really interesting conversation. So I'm really happy we got the chance to get into that. I don't want to make you guys wait any longer though, because I know you're pumped. So now that you know a little bit more about what you can expect in this episode, let's go ahead and hop into this interview with Christy Storeschuk. So you write, you're like a science writer. Is that how you would describe yourself? science nutrition writer and you're also involved in this film like what are all the things you're up to right now (laughs) okay so yeah I call myself a science writer (laughs) I specialize um in the ketogenic diet and metabolic therapies so this all kind of started when I was graduating from university and I reached out to a bunch of professors that were studying the ketogenic diet I was always interested in diet and nutrition and at the time the ketogenic diet just appealed to me because it was really the only diet that was backed by science. And so I reached out to Dom Diagostino and he happened to reply to me and he wasn't looking for new students at the time to join his lab, but he offered me a position to kind of handle all the educational content that he wanted to get out there. Um, but he just didn't have the time to do all of this. So I handle all his writing and like his blog and different outreach um, projects. And then so that caused me to really dive into the research behind the diet. And that's kind of led one thing led to another. And now that's my specialty. <laughs> yeah, well, so have you been 
like interested in nutrition and health like forever or did something spark that like have you always been healthy uh yeah my grandparents own a supplement shop so oh. I grew up like working there every summer and from like a very young age like 13 I would like sweep the floors and stuff and read about vitamins and minerals and everything um so I knew I was going to end up in this health space somewhere I just didn't know where um and now I'm just yeah riding this wave that has got me here and I've experimented with all sorts of diets I started with veganism when I was 15 just because at that time veganism was going to save the world and everyone's health Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and then I started CrossFit, got into paleo, and then came across the ketogenic diet. And now I'm here and I still follow ketogenic diet. This was like a year and a half ago mm-hmm. when I got into it. Um, but it's been, yeah, this is like the diet that makes the most sense to me. And it's, yeah, like I said, it's the only diet that's really backed by science and proven to be a medical therapy. And I think that's what draws me to it too, because because I had a passion for science. It was like, using food as medicine. Um, ketone bodies themselves are literally a medicine. It saves people's lives. And that's what's kind of kept me, um, kept the appeal to the diet. And then now with all this trend of like carnivore and everything, it's, I don't know, diets are, it's just so crazy. There's so many fads and everything, but, uh, this diet and like carnivore is kind of what makes the most sense to me right now. Yeah. You've had your experience with carnivore. So I have. Yeah. Well, I see that's why I'm so excited to talk to you. I feel you've done like literally everything and not many people have. Um, so I kind of want to like dive into each of these experiments you did personally on yourself. So like walk me through veganism, how you felt beginning and like what was going on there. Yeah. I don't even know why, like, I, I guess I think I was drawn to the diet just because of like social media. We're both young. We grew up in this world of social media and there was girls like posting beautiful plated foods and colorful and everything. And it was just something that was easily drawn to. And on a surface level, veganism makes a lot of sense. It's like, I don't want to kill animals. I want to be able to eat all this, like a huge plate of food. And, but when you dive into like what's actually happening in the body or what's in that food, it's and like how it's made, uh, it's just all the, all the reasons fall through the cracks a little bit with veganism. Um, but I never had any health problems that I was really trying to fix. It was more just, I liked being able to talk from experience. So veganism lasted about a year and a half to two years when I was in high school. And, and then I wanted to really start taking my athletics seriously. I was trying to get a scholarship, an NCAA scholarship. And so I was like, oh, paleo, I'm going to just eat a bunch of protein. And I remember feeling like I, I don't know, every diet I felt fine. I was young. I'm metabolically flexible. I was just really just doing it to experiment. And uh, I think, but now that I'm like looking back, I can definitely say that I feel the best when I'm on a ketogenic diet in terms of like digestion, portion sizes, everything. It's like when I was basically plant-based I could just eat forever like Mm -hmm. I never got full Mm -hmm. (laughs) and at the time I liked that because I was like oh I actually like love the act of eating but now that I've kind of switched to more of like a like uh smaller portion sizes but like more calorie dense it 
makes me feel so much better. I'm never bloated. I wake up with a flat stomach. Like it's just such a difference. And it just makes sense now that you like intermittent fasting is a huge thing. It, uh, like, um, there's a lot of research behind it and we want to give our time, like our bodies time to digest our food and not always be constantly bombarding ourselves with food. And it doesn't make sense to want to eat all the time. And when we can focus on these satiating foods, we're able to intermittent fast and we're like not causing a stressor. Like eating is actually kind of a stressor on our body. Every time we put food in our mouth, metabolism, just the way by virtue of how our cells make energy, it's always creating like reactive oxygen species and creating this uh, oxidative stress. So every time we eat, we're basically stressing our body. So if we can condense our eating window and eat more calorie dense, but smaller portions, like, I don't know, I think that there's something to that. Mm hmm. When you were, so when you're a vegan, so you kind of, so, okay, first of all, were you doing like unhealthy veganism or like paleo veganism? Like paleo veganism. Okay. I never was like into junk food or anything. Um, so I was basically almost eating a raw vegan diet at one point, um, which I was like the skinniest I've ever been, even though I was eating like tons of calories. But you, I don't know if you've like followed any of these raw vegans online mm-hmm. where we, eat like huge portions of like fruit and romaine lettuce and, mm-hmm. and like low fat. And, uh, I don't know why I was into that. I was young and stupid. <laughs> and so how are your, uh, what I like to ask you about is digestion and cognition at that time. How, how were those? Um, I don't think that there was any impairment in my cognition, to be Mm -hmm. honest. Maybe I didn't follow this type of diet or the style of eating for long enough to like have any health consequences. Mm -hmm. Um, But digestion wise, oh my gosh, I, I just, I'm never bloated anymore. Unless I'm like, eat a big salad. Now I've noticed these things. I I always thought that that was just normal. Like that's a normal part of finishing a meal like your stomach is distended and you feel uncomfortable <laughs> and mm-hmm. I accepted that as normal and now after like trying like almost a carnivore diet um and just limiting my vegetables to what whatever I want um you I've noticed a huge difference in just my overall comfort level after a meal yeah okay so then paleo what kind of paleo were you doing like, what were your macros like? Were you eating a ton of protein? Were you still eating a lot of carbs? Like, do you, were you just all over the board? All over the board. Okay. Uh, I love, like, I liked baking, like, treats and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, big into paleo, like, brownies and sweet potatoes. And I was definitely eating a high-carb paleo diet. So when I transitioned to a ketogenic diet, it was a big mental switch because I had to accept that I was going to be fueling myself with a macronutrient that I was largely avoiding before because I was basically on like a plant-based paleo diet, not eating a lot of meat, um, not eating a lot of fat. And uh, so I honestly, the ketogenic diet was a huge mentally liberating experience for me because I started incorporating oils and uh, fatty cuts of meat and fatty fish and just being okay with these foods it was very mentally liberating. And I always say that on paper, the ketogenic diet seems like such a restrictive diet. But to me, it almost made me less restrictive. Like I don't stress over going to a restaurant anymore. I don't, I don't care. Like, I I don't know, it's just been a super liberating experience. Yeah, I definitely had that 
experience as well. Like, I know people think of it as restrictive, but for me, it was freeing because I felt good on those foods, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something really freeing about being able to eat a lot of fat. (laughs) I know. Yeah. And yeah, just accepting it. Like, Mm -hmm. why, why do we set these rules or uh, I don't know. It's like a subconscious, um, yeah, rules that we set for ourselves. And then we become afraid of these foods. And that's such an unhealthy relationship with food. And it's so sad to see these young girls on social media, just being so dogmatic about their diet. And yes, people could say that about me, like, oh, I'm just following the trends. I'm on my next trend, or I'm just on the next bad diet. But when you really take a step back and think about how your body feels and look at it from an evolutionary perspective, it just makes so much more sense to eat this way. And people think that the being in ketosis is so unnatural. And I would argue that not going into ketosis is unnatural. We clearly evolved to go in and out of ketosis. And uh, if we're not, yeah, like our society right now doesn't allow for going in into ketosis, because we've been taught to eat six meals a day, eat carbohydrates, eat, never go into starvation mode, which clearly is not an actual thing. (laughs) So I think there's another side of the coin, though, because I find that there are a lot of people who go keto. And then it, it turns from, you know, they maybe came into it with a fat fear, and now they have a carb fear. Right. Um, so have you ever experienced that? Like, or like, do you incorporate starches into your diet at all? Or how do you feel about carbs? I'm not talking so, about vegetables. Well, maybe we should touch on that too. Okay. What's your version <laughs> of keto? Like, let's say like keto, like prior to carnivore, like what does that version of keto look like for you? Okay, I definitely started off a more plant based ketogenic diet. So Mm -hmm. I was relying on a lot of oils, a lot of low carb vegetables. So like broccoli, cauliflower, zucchini, Brussels sprouts, etc. And avocados. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and I was still feeling like bloated and gross, even though I was in ketosis. So there's so many ways to do a ketogenic diet. It's just an umbrella term for it's not even a diet. It's a metabolic state. So Mm -hmm. Um, you can do it vegan, paleo, whatever you want. Um, but now I've transitioned to a more meat based diet. I still include vegetables. Um, I'm not scared of vegetables. I'm also not scared of going out of ketosis. I just enjoy living in a state of ketosis. Um, but I don't actually include any starches or carbs, but, uh, that's just my personal preference. I don't know. Maybe I should be, I'm still experimenting. Like it's all a my diet is always evolving and I'm always learning from my body. Um, but I, I do go out of ketosis sometimes and it doesn't upset me or anything. Uh, I think that it's good. I have an appreciation for metabolic flexibility. Um, we should be able to burn both glucose, both ketones. Um, and yeah, but that's just my personal preference is not to include, I'm, I don't work well with moderation. So I like having like these, rules for myself. And I know that's kind of extreme and maybe not everyone can resonate with that, but that's how, that's how I kind of look at food. And part of, part of my job is even to be in ketosis. Like, um, so I work for Dom Diagostino and we both test a lot of ketogenic products and just to vet out which products are actually going to keep us in ketosis, which is super important if you're using the ketogenic diet as a therapy. Um, I, 
a parent feeding their kid for epilepsy to um, prevent seizures, if they're giving them a product that is claimed keto and it kicks them out of ketosis, they could have a seizure. Like that's huge. Um, so part of my job is like testing ketogenic foods and vetting out which ones keep us in ketosis. But that requires me to be in ketosis beforehand. So that's part of the reason I'm following the diet for them for a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, so no, I to answer your question. I do not include starches, but I'm not afraid of it. Like maybe I'll experiment with some carb cycling or something. I just feel great. Like I don't, I don't, my exercise, like I have been working out way better. I'm, my endurance has improved. I'm getting stronger. Like there's no impairments that I've seen and I haven't really seen a reason to start including carbs, but then again, I'm not like afraid of it. I'm not afraid of carbs. And okay, so how long have you been in ketosis? Uh, probably for like this long period of time has probably been like eight months, but I start like very strict, but I was going like in and out for the last like year and a half. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, first of all, can we talk about the products for a second? I don't know if you're allowed to say any of this, but like... Um, have there been any, any interesting insights into like things you've tried that, I don't know, kick you out that are labeled keto or like any revelations there? Yeah, um, there's definitely some labeled keto products that will kick you out of ketosis, but it's also very individual. So mm -hmm. everyone has a different metabolic response to food. So something that would kick me out of ketosis might keep someone else in ketosis it all depends on your activity level, um, age, your like how like what you ate the day before, your glycogen stores, everything kind of it there's no like one size fits all with a ketogenic diet or ketogenic foods, but it has been surprising and kind of upsetting to see that some of these foods are um, labeled keto and they're not and they'll spike glucose. Um, so there's certain types of fibers that will do this and um, it's yeah, it, it can be dangerous, but people like the industry, they're just jumping on like the trend. So mm -hmm. they're like, oh, I want to promote this as a keto product, but they don't have any vetted interest in the therapeutic side, which is what a lot of like what a lot of I do is on the therapeutic side. And uh, so, yeah, there's there's some keto products out there. So that will keep you up. what are some of the ingredients that people should like maybe watch out for like the type of fibers that might potentially kick them out? Um, so the fiber that I'm most familiar with is the oligo, uh, oligosaccharides. I, yeah, that yeah. one. So that one will actually produce a glucose response and a lot of products rely on that. But I think it's becoming more apparent that people are kind of shying away from that in the keto world, which is good. Mm -hmm. um, so soluble corn fiber is a good one. So I know like quest nutrition, they switched from that old fiber. I'm not even going to try and say it. Oligosaccharides to soluble corn fiber because it doesn't produce a glucose response. Um, but they're like maltitol that can kind of spike glucose a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's a sweetener, not a fiber. Um, and then there's uh, like a lot of these products do rely on fibers. So like chicory root and stuff, but although they might not have a response, it can kind of upset people's digestion. So I really like to stick to just a whole foods ketogenic diet. When I get into all these products and sweeteners, it, it kind of like messes with my like appetite and uh, portions and just like 
I don't know. I, I like being able to not have a sweet tooth. Mm-hmm. And I think that involves, even if it's like a natural sweetener that doesn't have a glycemic response, it's nice to not crave those things. And I think you have to cut them out altogether. Um, but I do see a role in them for like children and people mm-hmm. transitioning. And um, But yeah, it's hard. It's hard to get over a sweet tooth if you uh, are still including these healthy treats in yeah. quotations. Well, and I think that the sweetener conversation is really interesting because they'll say it's low glycemic or, you know, calorie free, whatever. But like there are plenty of sweeteners that like it's individual. Like I know a lot of these sweeteners still spike my blood sugar, like stevia, monk fruit. It still spikes my blood sugar. Really? Um, yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. I was, there was a period of time where like I was very strict, like sugar, starch, everything free, like sweetener free um, for like over a year and my taste my palate changed dramatically and that also changed like the way my blood sugar responded to certain foods and it got to a point where like if I put vanilla powder or cinnamon on food that would spike my blood sugar oh my gosh that's crazy I know known to reduce blood sugar (laughs) yeah I know it but because it was like it was literally like my brain it was so sweet like it was crazy and it doesn't do that anymore like now that I'm not like so strict um but it it just I don't know it's so individual and I've talked to like do you know Matt and Mega from Keto Connect yeah yeah and like I love how like they'll do all these different tests on themselves with different sweeteners to see how their blood sugar responds and like people are just different you know um yeah I also like I just want to clear up for people because I'm really like you know we talk about like keto products and that's like, fine for every day, but, like, a food isn't keto or not. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, like, it, you could say, like, oh, a carrot isn't keto or mm-hmm. something. but Or, like, spinach, yes, it's a keto food, but the whole diet, like, if, if you're in ketosis, you're following a ketogenic diet, mm-hmm. whatever foods you're eating. So, I was talking to Zach Bitter. He's a ultra marathon runner and he can eat up to like 200 grams of carbs. Like that, what he's eating, you wouldn't be like, oh, you're following a ketogenic diet, but he's in ketosis because he's running for hours on end. So it's so individual. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you can include all different types of foods and whether the it's the ketogenic diet is the only diet that you can tell if you're following it correctly. It has a defined biomarker beta hydroxybutyrate that will be in your blood and if you're following a ketogenic diet uh or if you're in ketosis if it's present in your blood you're following a ketogenic diet and that's the definition it doesn't it's not on paper 20 grams carbs this that um which those are good guidelines for someone starting a ketogenic diet but ultimately if you're not testing your blood ketones you really don't know if you're following a ketogenic diet and i don't think that you necessarily like have to be in ketosis and like people always strive for higher ketones and wanting to be in ketosis which is great there's a lot of benefits to just exposing your body to ketones but if you're just doing it for weight loss um or just to like feel better and focus on whole foods and just eating a lower carb diet is gonna have so many benefits whether you're in ketosis or not just on appetite regulation regulation your glucose levels insulin resistance so improving your insulin sensitivity um it's i think that 
limiting the amount of glucose spikes you have over a lifetime is going to benefit you dramatically. So what, what do you define as a low carbohydrate diet? Uh, <laughs> like what does that I mean? I haven't like tracked my food in so long, so I don't even know how many carbs I eat or were was eating. At the start, I was just trying to stay under like 40 grams of total carbs. Um, so I count total carbs, not net carbs, um, just because one that gets you away from relying on sweeteners and stuff. So erythritol, for example, counts as a carb, but if you're counting net carbs, then it wouldn't count. Um, and so when you count total carbs, it kind of puts into perspective how many whole, like the whole foods that you're eating. And if you're just relying on fibrous vegetables, then, um, you can probably eat up to like 50 grams of carbs a day and maintain ketosis for the average person. Um, but then once you start getting into like starches or different sweeteners and different products, like it gets a little iffy. Um, but anyway, that's besides the point. Um, wait, I forget the question. <laughs> like what a low carb, what a low carb diet oh, means. Right. Yeah, I would say like, so for me, a low carb diet is probably under 50 grams of mm. carbs, or I guess that's like more of a ketogenic diet. A low carb diet would probably be like under 80 grams of carbs, like for someone who's just trying to restrict carbohydrates. But yeah, I think the average person eats way more carbohydrates than they should be and and then they eat too frequently too and so just exposing yourself to glucose all day long is just it's just setting you up for disaster like the obesity epidemic is huge type 2 diabetes is huge and the, like type 2 diabetes is the low-hanging fruit for like a therapeutic use of the ketogenic diet or just a low-carb mm -hmm. diet in general and uh yeah so I would say under like 80 grams. Okay. In my, in my opinion, I don't actually know like what the literature says a low carb diet is. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's like, um, a black or white answer. That's why I ask people what they think of, you know, cause I think people throw these terms out and like, I can ask you and you'll say that I can ask, like, I think I asked when I asked Dr. Ruscio, he's like anything below like 150. And I was like, Oh, okay. That's, you know, everyone has a different, um, some people are like 75 to a hundred. I don't know. So I just like to ask people. Um, yeah, but okay. Can we talk about ketones for a second? Um, yeah. and like, I think especially on social media, it's turned into this like competition of who can have the highest ketones. Um, like when you're looking at ketones, first of all, like wh what does having a higher number mean? Um, okay. So if we're in ketosis, yeah, yeah our, li our liver is producing ketones and it's spilling them out into the blood. So that's fueling our body. And in order to produce ketones, though, we have to suppress glucose, which in turn suppresses insulin enough for our body to actually liberate our free fatty acids from our adipose tissue or the dietary fat that we're eating. So having high ketones either means that you're liberating a ton of fat from your from your body um, or you're just not using them effectively. So um, over time, you probably will find that your ketones are lower than they used to be. And that just means probably that your body is just using them better. So as, as we um, sustain ketosis, we get adapted to this style, uh, this metabolic state. 
and uh, our body becomes better at using them. We upregulate the transporters to get them into our cells and uh, we rely less and less on glucose. So there's like a huge shift in metabolism when you're in ketosis and the longer you sustain it, yes, your ketones will probably change. And it's kind of like how at the beginning you can, uh, your ketones will be excreted through your urine. So they always say like, if you're testing urine ketones, that it's only going to be accurate in the beginning because your body is not used to using them. So you're going to spill them out into your urine. Um, but as you become adapted to the diet, you will start using them. Your cells, your brain will start relying. You, our brain can be fueled up to like 75% by ketones. Um, so yeah, and your, uh, our heart actually preferentially takes up ketones too. Um, so your body just becomes better at using them. Your ketones will probably drop over time as you become adapted to the diet. And this doesn't mean that you're like not burning as much fat or anything. It's just that your body's becoming better at utilizing ketones. And at the end of the day, ketosis is just defined as over medically, it's defined as 0.5 millimolars, uh, beta, beta hydroxybutyrate. Um, but there's arguments that say even lower, like 0.2 could be considered ketosis. That means you're still producing ketones. Um, so I don't think that there needs to be this competition to have higher ketones. It could just mean that you're not good at burning them. Yeah, or just like drinking MCT oil. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> I feel like that's what people do, like honestly. Um, so, okay, so I know because you work a lot with Domin, so you guys look at like the therapeutic side of this. Um, do you do do you write for anyone or like look into the weight loss side of it? Or is it mostly like for like therapeutic for different conditions in terms of your research? Um, both. Uh, the weight loss side of things is definitely the most uninteresting part of the diet to me. Mm -hmm. I really do have a passion for the therapeutic applications in terms of neurodegeneration, um, and cancer and all those applications. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that weight loss is a huge draw to the diet and that can, if, if we can pull people in with weight loss and then they get all these extra benefits, that's great. So I think that there should be an appreciation for the weight loss and because obesity and type 2 diabetes is such a huge problem in uh, North America. So I think that we should focus a little bit on that. But at, like, at the end of the day, I love researching the more like cellular and molecular mechanisms mm -hmm. and everything. And uh, weight loss seems a bit like surface level, um, but there's 100% an appreciation for that effect. Mm -hmm. uh, like, uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's pr like basically why it's become popular. And I'm just wondering like what your opinion is on if you would formulate a, ketogen a, a ketogenic diet differently for somebody who was striving for weight loss versus like the brain benefits, um, the neurodegenerative effects. Like I think, I feel like one of the big topics in the keto space in terms of fat loss is it like we can eat all the fat we want and we'll still lose weight because we're in ketosis. You know, some people just think like you can, you know, eat as much as you want and you just have to be in ketosis and you'll be burning fat um, versus other people say, you know, you got to limit your fat and like, but then, you know, so I'm just wondering if you would do things differently depending on what the person's goal was with the diet. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a difference between just being in ketosis and wanting to lose weight. Um, you need to be in a calorie deficit in order to lose weight. Like that's the moral of the story. And if, whether you're doing that on a high carb or a low carb diet, it's the same. Um, but I would argue that 
a ketogenic diet makes creating a calorie deficit much easier. So with the um, just overall appetite suppression. So if you're eat, following the ketogenic diet, you'll probably find that you're less hungry throughout the day. You can intermittent fast a lot easier and that creates this calorie deficit needed to lose weight. And uh, if you're following a high carb diet, you might find that you're like constantly hungry. Our, our hunger will follow these rises and falls in insulin. But if you're following a ketogenic diet, you'll, your insulin will pretty much be stable all day. And if you're like looking at it on a graph, you could almost not tell when you're eating because your insulin won't spike um, like it would if you were eating carbohydrates. And that is a huge appetite suppressor. So mm-hmm. you're having you have better control over your appetite. And that's why it works for weight loss. But if you're over consuming calories and fat and drinking butter coffee after butter coffee, like there's not there's not a metabolic advantage to being in ketosis other than the like maybe there's like a slight I don't know the science is really new and mm-hmm. it's a it's very controversial um but I think in my opinion it's more just about having more better control over your appetite and being able to create this calorie deficit needed to lose weight and then and then it's also like so if you're in a calorie deficit it can mess with you a little bit like if you're uh you don't want to become like hypoglycemic or anything and being on a ketogenic diet prevents this and it just makes weight loss. I think it would make weight loss. I'm not trying to lose weight, but I think mm-hmm. it would make it more enjoyable because you're con- you're not constantly hungry and looking forward to your next or like thinking about your next meal and like planning out your day around your meals. It just I don't know removes the emotional attachment to food, um, which I think is very liberating for people. Mm-hmm. So in terms of like the other benefits of ketosis, like the conditions that you look at that people improve with um, when they follow a ketogenic diet? Can you share more about what some of those might be? Yeah. Um, so one thing I love researching uh, is Alzheimer's. I don't know. I had like a big passion for it for some reason. And uh, I, I've been able to go to some scientific conferences and learn from the scientists and hear them talk. And it's incredible. Um, so a lot of these neurodegenerative diseases are linked to insulin resistance. So impaired glucose metabolism is a hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. And that means that we literally just can't get glucose into our brain or we can't metabolize it properly. And it's been shown that ketones can bypass this impairment and fuel our brain in that restores the energy crisis that our brain was experiencing. And when we're, when we can't get glucose into our brain and we have no ketones present, we're just kind of on this downhill uh, slope where we're, our brain is becoming exhausted. We're, we're um, not able to repair. We're not able to clean out toxic proteins. We're not like our neurotransmission just deteriorates. We, our brain cells die and we get cognitive decline and eventually um, Alzheimer's disease. So ketones actually, they're, even in the face of um, brain glucose dysfunction, we can metabolize ketones. Ketones will get past our blood-brain barrier. They'll be metabolized. They'll restore the energy crisis. And uh, we're able to think clearly. It's been even shown to reverse the symptoms. And it's pretty amazing what ketones can do in the brain. Our brain is accounts for about 2% of our body weight, but it soaks up about 25% of our energy requirements, which is huge. Our brain is like super energy demanding. And being able to fuel it with ketones is just like a cleaner, uh, more reliable source of energy. And uh, if our brain's not receiving 
adequate energy, we get cognitive decline. So this is huge. If we if we could leverage this early in life, um, we could prevent this energy crisis from even occurring. And I think that's really powerful. And I think that gives a reason for people to do like um, intermittent ketosis. So you don't have to be following a ketogenic all the, diet all the time, but maybe like every other month or uh, a a couple day fat, like a two day fast here and there or something, just going in and out of ketosis and exposing our brain to ketones, I think on in a long term sense will have so many benefits. Um, and just in terms of insulin resistance, and like, I, I don't know, everything's related to insulin resistance and inflammation. So the ketogenic diet, um, just having ketones circulating in your blood are anti inflammatory molecules. So um, on a cellular level, they're they're actually changing our gene expression. They have an effect on our epigenome. So they, uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate actually inhibits HDACs, which are histone deacetylase um, protein. So our chromatin is wrapped up and in order to be condensed into our nucleus. And these, um, these proteins called histones are what make this happen. So HDACs actually um, remove these acetyl groups, allowing for gene expression to take place. And... Uh, or prevent or suppressing gene expression. So when we inhibit them, we allow for gene expression and uh, beta hydroxybutyrate has been shown to increase or um, like cause the gene expression of genes that deal with oxidative stress. Um, So there's lots of different anti-inflammatory effects of beta hydroxybutyrate. That's one of them. Um, It also inhibits the NLRP3 inflammasome, which is what promotes uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines. So if we can reduce the the uh, expression of these cytokines, we are reducing inflammation in the body. And like I said, every most chronic diseases are linked to insulin resistance and inflammation. So if we can reduce this somehow, and if that's just through diet, then that's amazing. Yeah, I think also, I mean, the natural progression of that insulin resistance diabetes and I think we all know it works well for type 2 diabetes but I think some people are still um, wary of type 1 diabetes so what what do you say about that that is definitely a new area of research but it is definitely promising so it's very controversial I don't think you would find many medical doctors saying that oh yeah you're type 1 diabetic you should be on a low-carb diet that is very rare. It probably only happens in functional medicine clinics. Um, but I do see, uh, like I, I am a fan of low carb diets for type one diabetes, but I am in no place. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm can't say anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Dom's PhD student, Andrew Kutnick, um, if you want to learn about type one diabetes, he, his website is andrewkutnick.com. And he has basically written and like, it should be its own chapter or book or something, but he's gone through all the research that could ever be that's out there on uh, low carb diet and type one diabetes. Cause he's a type one diabetic himself. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's super interesting. Um, it just makes sense. If lo- like we have, we use insulin as just a band aid to like normalize kids. Um, so like you're most people are diagnosed with type one diabetes when they're young. Um, Cause they're born with it. Uh, and we use insulin as just a band-aid to be like, oh yeah, you can eat whatever you want. You can eat what your friends get to eat, but just, just, uh, give yourself some more insulin. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's literally just a band-aid and it's, uh, not 
type one diabetes is linked to, I think it increases your risk for all, all of the top 10 causes of uh, mortality. So if you can, a diet, if it decreases your use of insulin, then that you can't argue that that's not working. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm not an expert in type one diabetes for sure. But I know that low carb, a very low carb diet is definitely some uh, a therapy and it's never gonna there's no cure for type 1 diabetes but Mm -hmm. if there's a way to lower your insulin requirements then then it's something to put into practice yeah um so the other thing I wanted to touch on is cancer because I think like most of us know that (laughs) ketogenic diet can be therapeutic for most types of cancer but I mean I've come across some research suggesting there are certain types of cancer that thrive off of ketone like they grow off of ketones have you come across that I know that there are some cancer types that can metabolize ketones so I don't think it's fair to say that the ketogenic diet works across the board for all cancer types but most cancers um, do have abnormal mitochondrial metabolism so their mitochondria are so dysfunctioned that they uh, and you need you need a healthy mitochondria to burn ketones. So the idea behind using um, a ketogenic diet in cancer is that you're starving cancer cells because you're um, exposing their dysfunction in mitochondria. So uh, then, so the way that cancer cells produce energy in the form of ATP is through glycolysis. So they upregulate glycolysis because of this dysfunction in mitochondrial metabolism, and this upregulation of glucose, it's, it's, a, it's what underlies the reason why we use um, PET scans. So we give uh, intravenous labeled glucose, and you can see on a PET scan where the tumor is because it's, su- it's sucking up so much glucose. And this glycolysis actually confers the, like how um, cancer cells grow. So it creates it, a byproduct of glycolysis with lactic acid, and it creates this acidic um, cellular environment and that actually promotes the growth of cancer as well so it's all like cancer cells are super smart they know they are upregulating glucose metabolism for a reason and uh but it's all kind of rooted in the warburg effect um mean which was um which means that their uh mitochondrial respiration is dysfunctional and so being able to use ketones and lower glucose, that's like the biggest part. So if you're taking exogenous ketones, but your glucose is still high, or we're still eating carbohydrates, that might not have the same effect of actually be, being on a ketogenic diet and suppressing glucose, suppressing insulin. Insulin is a huge driver of cancer growth. So just suppressing that, suppressing glucose, exposing or um, relying more on ketones and uh, exposing this m- mitochondrial dysfunction is that's the virtue of cancer as a metabolic disease, which is a theory of the origin of cancer. So, um, but like I, like you said, um, there have been studies that have shown that some cancer cells can use ketones. And I think that that is what's going to be, um, a new area of research because we need to figure this out. It's, we need to know which cancer cells thrive and which ones don't on a ketogenic diet. Um, and I think the ketogenic diet really shines in um, combination with other therapies too. So it's more, so there's this thing called a press pulse, um, protocol, which a press is something like a ketogenic diet where you're doing it the whole time. And then you pulse things like hyperbaric oxygen therapy or glutamine. So cancer cells also use glutamine, um, 
as a fermentable fuel. Um, so they use glucose and glutamine. So uh, the ketogenic diet would be working with like something like a glutamine inhibitor, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, even chemo radiation. Um, so the ketogenic diet can kind of make sure our healthy cells are thriving and um, make the cancer cells more vulnerable to these standard of care therapies. And that's also a big use of it. So it's not the ketogenic diet just alone on its own. Um, that's having these therapeutic benefits. We are going to take a brief break from this conversation with Christy to talk about something that is really important for overall health, and that is gut health. I really believe that the gut is the key to overall health, and a ketogenic diet can actually help a lot of people with their gut health, but something that's really important for most people to incorporate into their daily routines is a high quality probiotic. And unfortunately, most of the probiotics out there on the market are not real probiotics because they don't even make it to the intestines alive. Also, a lot of probiotics on the market actually cause more harm than good. Those are just a few reasons why I'm so picky about the probiotics I use and the ones that I recommend to all of my clients, but that is why I love Just Thrive Probiotic. Just Thrive Probiotic is a spore probiotic formula. It's made up of four bacillus strains, including Bacillus indicus, and these are some of the most well-studied probiotic strains for both safety and efficacy, and they've been used for over 60 years. I love the Just Thrive formulation because it actually survives the harsh gastric environment of the stomach and it's going to arrive 100% alive to your intestines. So it's a real probiotic. Like I said, most probiotics do not make it alive to the intestines. Studies have shown this, so they're not really a true probiotic. This is why Just Thrive doesn't need refrigeration. Just Thrive strains are so stable that they don't have to be refrigerated. Probiotics that need to be refrigerated are very sensitive, so sensitive that they're not going to survive room temperature on a shelf. So what do you think is going to happen to them when they are swallowed into a 98.6 degree body? That is the question. Just Thrive Probiotic is also great for digestive reconditioning and nutrient production. The bacillus endospores are like little gut police that are going to arrive into your intestines, read your microbiome, and actually have the ability to help to eliminate pathogens and toxins, the bad guys, while also producing compounds and nutrients that will help grow our good gut bacteria. And one of the strains in this probiotic, the Bacillus indicus that I mentioned before, is actually going to help produce your recommended daily allowance of really potent antioxidants like alpha and beta carotene, lycopene, lutein, astaxanthin, and zeaxanthin. These strains can also help to produce vitamin K2, methylated B vitamins, and a full array of digestive enzymes. So you're basically providing your body with its own nutrient factory. Also, Just Thrive Probiotic has been shown in clinical trials to actually help begin healing leaky gut in just 30 days. Leaky gut is really the main root cause of a lot of major chronic illnesses like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, autoimmune disease, dementia, and of course, all of the common gut issues. 
So this is really huge in helping to heal and seal a leaky gut. It's also great for immune support. The strains in Just Thrive can interact with and modulate the immune system in a positive way. The spores are going to kind of tutor your immune system to detect and attack any pathogens and toxins in the body. It's going to help upregulate the T regulatory system, which helps to suppress your unfavorable immune responses like allergies and food sensitivities. With 80% of the immune system found in the gut, Just Thrive is critical for helping to maintain overall optimal health. And then there's the metabolic reconditioning that comes with using a high-quality probiotic like the strains in Just Thrive. These strains have the unique ability to really drastically improve the production of short-chain fatty acids, especially butyrate, acetate, and propionate. With a 40% or more increase in short-chain fatty acid production, this is going to cause a measurable metabolic shift in the body. Higher production of short-chain fatty acids actually results in less fat storage, higher fat burn, improved insulin sensitivity, improved satiety, and reduced gut and systemic inflammation, which is a total game-changer. This is why a high-quality probiotic can actually help people with their weight loss efforts. It also helps with things like joint pain, allergies, stress, and mood. If you have anxiety or low mood, this is a total game-changer really to support your mental health. You need to support your gut health. I cannot say enough amazing things about Just Thrive Probiotic. This is the probiotic I use myself, and I really recommend all my clients use. So if you are interested in trying Just Thrive, go to bit.ly slash Thrive Probiotic CRW and you can use my discount code Christina15. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A 15 percent off. Again, that's bit.ly slash Thrive Probiotic CRW and my code is Christina15. I swear the key to life is a happy gut. It's a game changer and this will help get you there. All right, now that I've given you your daily dose of gut health advice, let's hop back into this conversation with Christy. The other thing I, I want to get into is a little bit about fasting um, and how that plays into it. And like, I think there's this misconception that you like have to fast to be in ketosis, um, which you don't. But what are the different like types of fasts that you think, actually, here's a good question. People want to know, like, how long do I need to fast if we're looking at intermittent fasting to get the benefits? I mean, I guess it depends on what you define as a benefit. Uh, So, I mean, I practice just a normal intermittent fasting, like 16-8 type protocol. Um, But I think fasting makes getting into, well, fasting is the easiest way to get into ketosis. Mm -hmm. So, if you are, if your goal is to be in ketosis, then utilizing fasting can be very beneficial. So, um, but even if you don't want to follow like a super, a restricted, a carb restricted diet, then fasting could be kind of a way to uh, circumvent that. Um, so maybe you could eat a little bit more carbs, but implement fasting into your daily routine, or do like a 24 hour fast once a week, um, you're probably going to get it if you're following a low carb diet and fasting, it makes getting into ketosis a lot easier. So the way I think of entering ketosis is through depleting our glycogen stores. So if we're eating low carb and we are exercising, um, our glycogen stores will like, so we need to get through 
I think of it as like a hybrid car. So in order to shift from using gas to using like an electric car, Mm -hmm. um, you have to burn through the gas first in order to uh, activate the electric part of the car. I'm not a car person, clearly. I don't even know the right words to use. Um, I don't either. We know what you mean, though. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of like how ketosis works. We have to burn through our glycogen uh, first in order to uh, activate ketogenesis in our liver. Um, But that all happens with the suppression of glucose and suppression of insulin. Um, So fasting just makes that easier because you're obviously not eating and Mm -hmm. you're burning through your glycogen. And if you're not giving yourself energy during this fasting period, then yeah, it makes getting into ketosis easier. And then it's a, it's a, they both benefit each other. Ketosis makes fasting easier. Fasting enhances ketosis, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. What would be like, is there an advantage or a difference between someone, say they want to do like intermittent fasting more regularly versus like, um, a weekly 24 hour or like a monthly 72 or like, how do those compare? Uh, yeah. So I guess it depends on like your lifestyle. So if you want to enjoy carbohydrates here and there, then maybe like a longer fast would be beneficial for you just to like get into ketosis for a small period of time and then go back to your normal routine. So that would be like intermittent ketosis. Mm -hmm. Um, but for someone who likes to be on a regular schedule, then intermittent fasting could be utilized. Um, I mean, longer fasts will definitely help with like certain benefits, like if you want to talk about autophagy or something. So um, in order to activate autophagy, I mean, it's always working on a basal level. But if we want to like really get the benefits of autophagy, you might have to fast past like I don't know, maybe a 24 hour fast is what, where you're going to see benefits. I don't even, I don't think this is really well documented in humans. It's all pretty much animal studies. So it's hard to know the time that we activate autophagy, but it all, it all kind of stems back to like insulin, our nutrient sensing pathways and mTOR. So mTOR is a huge um, inhibitor or yeah, inhibitor of autophagy. So we need, we need to suppress mTOR. And in order to do that, we suppress our nutrients intake. So fasting. Uh, so it all, I think it, it all just stems back to, yeah, our, what we're eating. So if we're eating carbohydrates and we're stimulating insulin and everything, then uh, that's going to inhibit the benefits of um, a fast. So autophagy and everything in our cellular cleanup and mm-hmm. just going into ketosis itself has its many benefits in terms of mental clarity and everything. So people might find that they're like, it's almost like euphoric to fast. Yeah. It's experienced that too. So, okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just interesting because I'll read so many different fasting experts and I like, everybody has a different opinion on where the benefit lies. Like I've read people say like after, I read some people say after 24 hours, there's no benefit. So there's no point in doing 72 or like I've had people say the same thing about after 36, there's no benefits. Um, I've also seen some people say that like you really only need to do 12 hour fasts every day to get the benefits. So like, I just think it's really confusing for people. I've had a lot of messages. People ask me about this and I'm like, I don't know. Cause everyone I read says there's a different number of hours. So yeah. <laughs> 
just as confused as you, I guess. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, you have to think about what are people trying to get out of it? Mm -hmm. Like, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't think there is an answer to be honest. I know. I think the research on it is just so still like mixed. That's why everyone has a different opinion. Um, just because like you touched on it, can you just explain to people what mTOR is? (laughs) Uh, yeah. So it's, one of our nutrient sensing pathways. So it's stimulated when we eat. So uh, mTOR, it's, we need mTOR. We, uh, it's what drives muscle growth. Uh, it's a anabolic uh, protein. So we need it to grow our muscles and everything. It's stimulated when we exercise, stimulated when we eat. Uh, but when we suppress it, um, we also have benefits. So that goes into a catabolic state, which we shouldn't be scared of going into a catabolic state. It doesn't mean that we're going to waste away or anything. It just means that our cells, are so if, when, going back to autophagy, um, when we suppress mTOR, we're, uh, we activate autophagy. And mm-hmm. that means that we are cleaning up our cells. So autophagy is basically our cellular cleanup mechanism. We take old damaged proteins, old cellular components that just aren't serving us anymore, and we break them down into their building blocks, and we repurpose them to build better, healthier cells. And this is a really important process and it can be linked to uh, neurodegeneration and Alzheimer's and everything too, because we, uh, another hallmark of Alzheimer's is the buildup of amyloid plaques. And, um, so being able to degrade things like that, uh, is really important. And in order to do that, we need to have a period of time where we're suppressing these nutrient sensing pathways. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's, that's it on a surface level. I yeah. can't really go into much more detail. I don't think people need much more detail. I just have a lot of guests who talk about mTOR, and like I never really have anyone explain it. So I'm like, I should just have you t- t- say what, what it is. Um, okay, this this is the last thing I kind of want you to weigh in on keto specifically, which will bring us into the next thing. But can we talk about this protein debate in terms of keto? Because... Um, there's a lot of people who have just become really afraid of protein and keeping it super low. And then we have other people in the camp of like, don't worry about your protein. Like it's not going to keep you out of ketosis. Um, what have you, what's your opinion in terms of like the research slash your own personal experience? Right. So I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, so the original classical ketogenic diet recommended one gram of protein per kilogram body weight, which is very low. So um, that that was like a moderate amount of protein. That's what was recommended for children with refractory epilepsy. And this was very restricted. Um, So but as the ketogenic diet has evolved, it kind of the next um, diet that was introduced was called a modified Atkins diet. So this involved way more protein, um, like almost double the amount of protein. So up to like 1.8 grams per kilogram, um, which allowed a way better adherence to the diet because then people weren't just eating full fat sour cream or something. Mm -hmm. Um, The original ketogenic diet was very heavily based on dairy. Um, So with the addition of this protein and understanding that we could get the therapeutic effects of ketosis within the addition of this protein, um, it's been really great for the community because now there's uh, like – you're not going to stunt a child's growth or something with the ketogenic diet, um, which was kind of one of the side effects of the early classical ketogenic diet. Um, 
but for me, so personally, I always thought, yes, protein, if you increase it too high, it's going to kick you out of ketosis. And there is definitely something to say to that. It is, it's not just made up. It's, uh, we, in protein, there are gluconeogenic amino acids that can be converted into glucose. So, um, I think personally, I think it just involves your own testing. We are all our own metabolic, uh, entities and we're, we're very individual. And, uh, for me, so for example, I tested a meal yesterday and it was, uh, grass-fed beef, eggs, and some mushrooms, all cooked in tallow. And it was 40 grams of protein, and I it did not kick me out of ketosis. So I measured it. It just it dropped my ketones a bit, but I, it didn't kick me out. And uh, But that was, like, kind of a high fat. So I want to do some more testing with, like, lean meats and see what happens there. Um, mm-hmm. But there, if not, it's not just some myth that, protein is going to kick you out of ketosis though, because I, there's, uh, the biochemistry makes sense is protein can spike insulin. Insulin prevents ketogenesis. Um, but I think it has to do with the amount of fat that you're including with that meal too. So that could probably prevent, um, the spike in insulin. And, uh, but there's also so much other science involved where they, uh, it's believed that being in a state of ketosis, means that your body responds differently to proteins. So Ben Bickman is a big researcher um, in this area, and he will present on the fact that our bodies can't afford to spike insulin if we're in ketosis, because if we spike insulin and we have no glucose coming in, then we're going to be hypoglycemic. Um, so his idea is that, yeah, we can't afford to spike insulin. and But if you think, I, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about this research. It's in dogs. Um, mm-hmm. There's been, I don't know if there's been any human studies showing this. Um, so that's why I say, uh, just get your ketone meter out and test. If you do, if you want to know if it kicks you out of ketosis, just test, just test your metabolic response to a meal and that'll give you the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know why people are even debating over this or arguing. You can just find out for yourself. Yeah. When testing, how soon after a meal do you test so I do I do before and then I eat and then 30 minutes 60 90 120 um and yeah that's how I test cool so let's I want to move into carnivore and like kind of what led you to trying out carnivore um yeah what was your interest doing that yeah um I mean just like every other fad diet social media Mm-hmm. Uh, introduced me to the carnivore diet. And at first, I was apprehensive, I wasn't relying heavily on animal foods for my calories. And uh, so it kind of took me a while to be okay with I, I've never even cooked red meat at my house, like I've only ever eaten it if it was cooked for me. Um, so about like, I want to say like six months ago, I started finally, like going out to the local farmers around my area and just getting grass fed meat and um started cooking red meat for myself and I've noticed a huge benefit. I, um, I feel so much better. And then I started getting into the understanding the evolutionary aspect of it. And it just made so much sense that we need these animal foods. And, uh, so I don't just include, I, I pretty much eat like nose to tail. So I really like eating, uh, like canned fish with the bones in it. Um, I do incorporate, uh, beef liver, chicken hearts, 
beef heart, um, all types of organ meats and different cuts and different, uh, different animals. And, uh, yeah, so I just really, really think that we need animal foods in our diet from a bioavailability aspect. Plants just aren't, don't have bioavailable nutrients in them. And it's kind of scary now to realize, like understanding that side of it, it's scary to look back and see all these, um, people following a plant-based diet. And, and my biggest thing, my biggest thing with a plant-based diet is DHA. Like we cannot get DHA from plants. It is, um, an essential fatty acid in our brain. It's the most predominant fatty acid in our brain. And it's involved in so many cellular, uh, pathways. And it's scary to think that if you're starving your brain of DHA, you could be deteriorating your brain. And I, I'm so for keeping cognitive function until I die. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the form of omega-3 in plants is in a form that just can't be converted to EPA or DHA. So that's one of the biggest things that I have against a vegan diet. And, uh, and then all, all the other bioavailable um, vitamins and minerals like iron, selenium, zinc, calcium, everything. It's just way more bioavailable in animals. And I think that once you understand that you become way more comfortable with eating these foods. And it was like a transition to be comfortable eating these foods. So I, like I said, at the beginning, like a, a plant-based diet, it's so appealing from a surface level. Like I, it, you can make beautiful looking food, take a photo, post on Instagram. It just, there's, there's nothing sexy about ground beef <laughs> like, like you, mm-hmm. it's just not gonna look as aesthetic and uh I think that's like it almost created this subconscious I don't know disappeal to mm-hmm. meat for me um and then like cooking it and everything um but once you I don't know understand the sustainability side the agriculture side the the side from even just our environment so we need these ruminant animals to keep up the health of our soils um mm-hmm. we monocropping soy and corn and wheat and canola that's destroying our soils that's destroying environments ecosystems habitats like there's so many cracks that veganism can fall through and um understanding each side of the argument uh really makes me feel comfortable eating animal foods and i've never felt better um So that's one of the big reasons I'm drawn to understanding the carnivore diet. I'm very new to this. Um, I've just started implementing it. And but I know that, like, I, I feel better. So I think that's the the biggest uh, sign that I'm on the right track. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. Like, I think most of the people listening this and myself included, like very on board with like, everything is much more bioavailable in animal products like this. But then I think going from the leap to like, I think there's a difference between comparing veganism to carnivore than comparing like a paleo diet that includes vegetables and plenty of animal animal protein to carnivore. Like in terms of your own research, like do you think that there's enough in plants that plants that make them harmful to um, support like the exclusion of, of those in your diet? Um, I don't think I'll ever like fully exclude plants, but Mm -hmm. I enjoy them. Like I do enjoy my salads. And like I 
said before too, is like, I enjoy that act of eating. Mm -hmm. So a salad to me is kind of just like, oh, I'm using this romaine or greens or whatever, just to like bulk up my meal and make Mm -hmm. me feel like I'm eating a bigger portion. Um, But there are a lot of arguments to make against plants, which I haven't fully jumped on board with. Uh, But there are obviously anti-nutrients in plants. That's why we, that's why you were probably drawn to the paleo diet and like these grains and lectins and phytic acid and uh, everything in those types of foods. Um, But they're also in vegetables. So I don't know if you're familiar with oxalates, Mm -hmm. which are in like spinach, almonds, um, a lot of cruciferous vegetables, and they literally are anti-nutrients. They bind calcium, they bind different um, minerals, and we can't absorb them. So I'm almost thinking like, oh, what am I doing by putting my sardines on these on a spinach salad? Am I like, is the spinach inhibiting the absorption of the nutrients from my sardines? Like, I, I think that there's so much to understand when it comes to food and vitamins and minerals. And we can't just look at the USDA like recommendations or like foods, uh, quantities in certain foods, because they're not based on bioavailability. They're based on what's found in that food. And at the end of the day, bioavailability is what's important. If we're not absorbing it, what's the point of eating it? Mm -hmm. I think it's just so confusing for people because especially in the paleo world, I think like the happy medium or like what everyone's always says is, what we can all agree on is that we should eat plenty of plants. Like, and now that's being thrown out the window. And like, I know I hear a lot of people like Dr. Mark Hyman is like, meat should be a condiment. Like you can include your meat, condom meat, right? Like mostly plant-based and then add in your animal products. And like, so your opinion right now, which could always change depending on research, do you like, do you think that in terms of health, the ratio like we should be eating less plants than animals wow that's a big loaded question I don't know how to answer that uh (laughs) it's so weird because I came from like a plant-based diet to like Mm -hmm. now meat-based but uh yeah like I think that our I think meat should be the focus of each meal or Mm -hmm. an animal product not necessarily like red meat like it could be fish or whatever um And then, yeah, plants as a condiment, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's how I'm kind of approaching my diet right now. And I feel good. But, uh, yeah, I think I want to do, like, an experiment, just, like, a 30-day carnivore experiment, get all my blood tested and everything, see. I don't know. It's all just blowing my mind a little bit right now. Yeah, it is. It is um, very mind-blowing. That's why I think, like, people should try everything and just see how they feel, you know, really. Um, the carnivore thing just throws people for for a loop. So I think you should oh, yeah. definitely do um, a thirty day experiment and test and test everything. Um, I think that also I want to touch on like so like how much meat are you eating? Like when I'm saying like meat should be the focus, I think this is where, where people are confused. So it's like when we talk about meat being the focus of our meals, does this mean we're just taking away plants or are we adding more meat or both? And um, by meat, I mean like animal products. I don't want to right. say just red meat, animal products. Right. Um, I've been adding more animal products. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I before I would probably have like 
some greens. For, so if, like for my first meal of the day, I would probably have like some greens, a whole avocado and two eggs or something. Mm-hmm. But now I would probably, well, not now, just if I were to be more carnivore, I would probably have like three eggs, half an avocado, and then like some greens or something like that. But just increasing the protein and yeah, yeah, I'm definitely including more meat. So like, uh, I don't know, like ounces or weights mm-hmm. or anything. But I, but I also don't like, pay attention to that kind of stuff. I kind of just eat until I'm satisfied. Mm-hmm. And but if I'm eating till I'm satisfied, I'll always gravitate towards more meat instead of more vegetables if I'm like still hungry. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So I think I am increasing my meat when I'm saying that I'm Wait, yeah, no, and increasing my meat. That's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> I just want there to be more studies. I mean, I don't know if there can be or will be on carnivore because I just think something weird happens, like, with the body. And I've talked to Sasha Red, so many people who, flip, who go to carnivore from keto, and they'll, like, double their calories and, like, lose weight sometimes or, like, something weird happens. But And sometimes the opposite happens. Sometimes people go carnivore because they think that's going to make them drop weight and they gain weight. Um, I don't know. I just think something strange happens because it's like a lot of people will go from like a paleo diet or they're eating more balanced. And then now they're eating like three pounds of meat a day. And they're like, whoa, like, yeah, (laughs) honestly, I feel like for me, it all comes down to like how bloated and I feel Mm -hmm. like I can eat so much, like so many calories on a meat based diet and still have a flat stomach. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's, yeah, I, I and I'm full. So like, that's the best part is like, you're so satisfied after a meal that you don't need to like snack or uh, feel like you need a dessert or anything. Yeah. So do you, so you do a sixteen eight fast every day? I mean, I don't necessarily like time it, yeah. but it just kind of happens that way. But I do have MCTs in my coffee. So um, from a calorie perspective, I'm technically not fasting. But from like an insulinogenic aspect, I, my liver still thinks I'm in a fasted state. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just love my creamy coffees. It's the best part of my day. It makes my morning so much better. And it, MCTs get converted into ketones very rapidly. So I'm just basically boosting my ketones in the morning. That's when I do my best work. It makes me feel productive. I don't have to think about food while I'm getting all my work done in the morning. And then, um, uh, and then I get to eat later in the day, and that's how I feel good. I don't know. Yeah. So you do coffee, and then you do, like, two meals usually? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah. And when do you usually, like, train? Uh, it kind of varies. I'm, I travel a lot, so my routine is all over the place. But mm-hmm. if it were up to me, I'd probably work out at, like, 1030 every day and mm-hmm. then have my first meal around noon. And that's how – that's when I like feel the best and my best routine. Cause, cause I want to eat after I train and if I, I don't want to eat too early. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what works, but yeah. Was it difficult for you to first transition to a ketogenic diet? Like, did you go uh, through a period of feeling like, did you go through keto flu? Did you go through like a hunger issue? Did you go through anything? Um, I didn't go through a keto flu. No. Mm. Um, but I did go through a phase where I was just like making keto treats all the time. Mm. So, and they're so easy to overconsume. Yeah. Like, 
they are. <laughs> yeah. So I would eat like a whole tray of like fat bombs or whatever. So that was hard for me, but I didn't, I don't know. I'm not looking to lose weight or anything. So I don't really care about, I don't care about calories mm-hmm. at all. Um, so, but I could see where that could be an issue for someone trying to lose weight or calorie restrict. Um, but that was definitely that when I was transitioning, I relied a lot on these ketogenic sweets and treats and I love to bake and make food. Um, but now I've kind of, uh, regulated my appetite and what I, what I eat and increasing my protein has really helped with just feeling satisfied throughout the day and not having to rely on these treats or snacks. And, uh, but at the beginning I was highly reliant on them and it was fun. Like you get Mm -hmm. to, when you transition to a diet, you're like, Oh, I get to try out all these new treats and packaged foods and I still eat them uh from time again like I said I test a lot of different products um and they're delicious and they're awesome but I don't include them in my daily routine anymore Mm -hmm. I agree I think also like digestively (laughs) like if you eat a tray of fat bombs like good luck with your digestion that's (laughs) yeah (laughs) um like I think so one last thing I just wanted to cover because I know we talked about this a a little bit before was just like do you feel like you got any judgment for like the way you eat like in terms of like we, we talked about women feeling they should eat these little light salads mm-hmm. <laughs> and plants um and it throws people off when they see a blonde girl eating meat I mean when <laughs> I did a carnivore diet I got so much <laughs> crap for it um and did you, did you, have you gotten any like judgment in terms of that? Or like, was it more for you personally, just weird to make that, that flip? Um, no, I haven't gotten any judgment, but I think it's more personal just, um, but yeah. So I think that women are afraid to feel full. Like they're afraid of just like having a big meal to actually satisfy themselves. And Uh, I'm sorry, but a salad is not going to promote a feeling of fullness Mm -hmm. unless you're making it at home and get to add as much as you want. But like being at a restaurant, like these uh, people, girls, I think, in my opinion, girls gravitate towards the lighter dishes. And um, yeah, and I think it's a feeling of not eating like a big steak or something in front of people and feeling uncomfortable ordering like the big meal or anything. And I think that's that's a really bad it's sending a really bad message. We don't need to fear food. We don't need to fear portion sizes. Just eat the right foods and you'll feel full and you'll feel satisfied and you'll be healthy. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't need to be like calorie restricting. We don't need to be like constantly thinking about like, oh, is this food going to make me gain weight? Or um, yeah, I've heard people say like, oh, I'm scared of eating red meat because I'm scared of getting fat. I'm like what? That doesn't make sense. Like, be uh, like I don't know people just have this flawed perception of me and I and it there in all fairness we have been taught for the past 50 years 60 years in nutritional sciences that saturated fat is going to cause heart disease and that red meat is going to cause cancer and it's carcinogenic and etc etc when all of these things are being um debunked and we are clearly meant to be eating animal products and I think that as women it's important to understand that we need these products too and it's not something to fear being judged about ordering the steak and not 
having to just eat this like lean chicken breast and we don't all have to be eating like these bodybuilders who weigh out all their foods and are scared of fat. Um, we need, we need these foods and it's such an important message to feel comfortable eating them. And I think understanding the arguments is going to help people feel more comfortable. And that's what, that's what made me feel more comfortable. Just understanding the nutrition side of things, understanding the sustainability side of things and like the moral aspect of it all. Um, it's okay. We're like, yes, it's hard because there's a face associated with the food on your plate and that doesn't happen with a vegan diet. But in reality behind that vegan diet, if you're eating corn, if you're eating soy, if you're eating wheat, there's thousands of animals dying in those fields, um, every day by just Mm -hmm. tractors going through, like you're killing more lives than you would be if you were just eating that, uh, like a larger animal. Um, so there's like a lot of arguments to be made and understanding each side will make people feel more comfortable. Yeah. I, I'm also interested in like with social media, as you share more, I mean, I saw like the other day you posted something about eating meat and that like basically meat's better than plants. Um, and I was looking at some of the comments and like some people are pretty rough. Oh my God. Some people are so mean. I got sent like a DM of like just pictures of animals being tortured. I was like, oh my gosh, you are a need to chill. Did you respond? No. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know, some of the things that people were saying, I was just trying to, basically, like, it's just interesting how, like, we talk about this can be a freeing way of eating, and then someone, that she goes, what message is that sending to these women that were taught they should order the salad, not the steak? Are you trying to avoid carbs? Like, <laughs> like, I know, people are just twisting my words and like, no, that was not the message I was relaying at all. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's just, it can be hard. And I think that's part of the reason why like no one is talking about, I mean, people are now, but like it's a tough conversation and people don't want to have it. Like, because there's this moral thing and everyone's just attacking you. And so it's like, if you want to talk about eating meat is good, then everyone's attacking you. And you're like, well, we can't get nutritional information out there to people who need to hear it because you're shoving your mora- your fake morality down my throat. Is yeah. how I feel, you know, and sharing <laughs> false information, like false information. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, I think it's just a lack of education. And I was guilty of that. I totally fell for the vegan argument. Like I, I put a face, I associated a face with my food and I thought that like animal agriculture was destroying the planet and everything, but it's just not true. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's, I think part of, that's what Brian Sanders' documentary is about. It's basically debunking this bad nutrition advice that we've been taught. When, when we think about it though, from an evolutionary perspective, I always bring it back to this because it's so huge. It's, part of being human we evolved eating animal foods that's the reason we became human we that's the reason we be able we're able to hunt we're able to walk on two feet we could build these big brains that allowed for all of this and like i know that dha was a big part of that too and dha is not found in plants so there's like one clear aspect of why we need to be including stuff like fish or sea seafoods and shore-based foods and uh yeah it's it's scary to think that we um, are convinced of a vegan diet when in reality it actually has so many detrimental 
aspects to it. Yep. Yep. Sorry if you don't want to hear it, guys. <laughs> but I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm just never gonna be on board with like a long term vegan diet. I think some people might I I believe that many people might feel better on like less animal products than others, but it's like just like physically impossible. You can't be healthy if you never have an animal product. Like you exactly. just can't. And I think also people don't realize that most of the vegans on social media secretly eat animal products. <laughs> Do you think that? Oh, I know that. Like, oh my I know gosh. that. I mean, let's say it's like, I mean, I used to work with a big vegan, like a big blogger who used to be vegan and then came out about not being vegan. And she knows all the raw vegans and all the, the she knows all the vegans. And she would tell me like, and we'd talk to people and I'm like, none of these people all these people will still eat like fish on the side and they just won't tell. Oh my God. That's crazy. That is so bad because then there's these young girls that follow these girls and try and emulate what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. I don't, social media is dangerous. It is. Well, and then, or you'll get people following vegan, a vegan diet and they drop a ton of weight because they're basically malnourished. And then they're like praised because we think that looking malnourished now is like the way people should look, apparently, mm-hmm. <laughs> according to the media. Um, and it just feeds into this this cycle. But you you don't know how someone what you don't know the state of someone's health just by looking at them. You definitely don't know what their cognition is like on social media. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's dangerous to follow people and just copy what they're doing. You have to be in tune with yourself mm-hmm. and you have to be open-minded. And I think that's one of the biggest points of like being open-minded is how you are going to find your optimal diet. Mm-hmm. And everyone might need to follow a different diet. Like what works for me might not work for you. And But at least stay open-minded to trying different things and that's going to be key in finding the diet that works for you. A hundred percent. Love it. Agree. I think that's a good note to end on. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find more from you if they want to connect with you further? Well, first off, thank you for having me on. This has been great. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Christy stores, K R I S T I S T O R S. And I have a website, Christy stores, Chuck, my last name is really hard to spell, but you can just go find it in my Instagram bio. Um, and that's it. That's where you can find me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Christy. Thank you. Thank you so much to Christy for coming on the podcast and sharing all of her knowledge. I know that you guys like to geek out over nutrition like me, so I'm sure you loved this. If you want to learn more from Christy, just follow her on Instagram at Christy Stores, K-R-I-S-T-I-S-T-O-R-S. Her info will be in the show notes. You can also go to her website, ChristyStoresChuck.com. Make sure you let her know if you enjoyed this episode and make sure you share it on social media. If you did, I love it when you guys share on social media. You can just tag me and the guests so we know that you loved the episode. Don't forget to join the Facebook group Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe if you haven't already so you can connect with other listeners. And if you want to take a minute out of your day to show your support for this podcast, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. It really helps me spread the word about the show and helps other people find it. 
don't forget to pick up your wellness realness retreat ticket if you haven't already i want to see you there and i know you want to be there all right that's going to be it for this episode i hope you have an amazing day and i will chat with you again next time bye